listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. We are starting a new uh, topic this month, as happens every month at Sunday School. We, we uh, try and dive into one topic for a month, um, and, then, and, and then switch topics. So, um, before we jump into the topic for this month, I do want to highlight Millfall Retreat. Who is registered to go to Millfall Retreat? Yes. For any of you that didn't raise your hand, you need to register. Uh, Millfall Retreat is October 22, 23, and 24. Absolutely incredible time. Um, and so you can do that uh, by filling out an, a, a registration card, and uh, you can pay by check and just do it, on, or you can go online. Um, you can actually just register and reserve your spot by putting down a $25 deposit, and then you can pay the balance um, at the, when Fall Retreat begins, when you register at the door um, or check in. And so if you don't have all the money right now, you can just put down the deposit and then pay the balance later if you'd like to do it that way. Um, and so I encourage you to reserve your spot, and um, we would love to have you there. For any of you that have not been to Millfall Retreat, um, it's such an incredible time. Um, it's so great and so important to get away, uh, kind of get away from the cell phone, get away from uh, uh, all the different pressures and things that are going on for a weekend, to be able to, to focus in some ways, focus on God, fo- focus on relationships. Um, and for any of you, that, especially if you're newish around the mill, it is such a wonderful way to really um, jump in and engage with the Lord and engage with others. Um, and it's such a wonderful catalyst to growing in relationship. Um, around the mill. So I encourage you to do this. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, what God has to say about our lives and uh, what we're supposed to do with our lives and um, what, our, um, what our purpose is and all that kind of thing. So, um, so anyway, I don't, we'll talk more in detail once we're up there, but I encourage you to make yourself um, a part of all of that. All right? Um, we are talking about uh, today and for the next month here in Sunday School uh, the topic of symbols and sacraments. And um, how many of you, just, just for a, a, a show of where we're coming from, kind of some background, how many of you came from uh, some sort of mainline or some sort of uh, denominational church, some sort of traditional church where you grew up uh, involved in, in going to church where there was traditional liturgy involved? How many of you came from a church like that? Okay, um, what, what, uh, how about you? Just You can yell it out. Right here, green shirt, sunglasses. What's that? Nazarene church, okay. And somebody else. Who raised your hand? Yeah. Anglican church, okay. Lutheran, all right. I, my grandparents are Lutheran. Okay, Methodist and Catholic. All right, how, who else? Yeah, right here. Methodist, okay. Anybody else? Okay, so... My, is it safe to assume, then, that the rest of you either didn't grow up in church at all or grew up in a non-denominational church? Is that, is that pretty accurate, do you think? Okay. Um, I also grew up in a non-denominational church similar to New Life um, or churches like it. And, um, and so because of that, um, I, think that I, I, uh, I think it developed subtly a little bit of a, a certain perspective on uh, symbols, sacraments, and liturgy. Um, before I jump into maybe talking a little bit about where I've come from, where um, maybe many of us have come from, and uh, maybe a little bit of a bigger perspective, over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about, and Dr. Joe's going to talk about 
some of the specifics, going to talk about communion, going to talk about baptism, uh, some of the very specific sacraments of the church. Uh, but today I want to talk a little bit more about the perspective on liturgy. And so maybe before we talk about where we've come from and where we're going, um, I'd love to talk just a little bit about maybe give you a definition for liturgy. Liturgy, we, every, every church service you go to has some sort of liturgy, okay? So um, if you go to New Life, there's a liturgy at New Life. Um, if you go to the mill, there's a liturgy at the mill. If you go to a Catholic church, there's a liturgy at, the, at a Catholic church. There's an Anglican liturgy. Um, and, and so I, the, the definition of liturgy is actually a pretty broad definition um, that doesn't just apply oftentimes to what we think uh, of when we think of liturgy. When, we think, when I think of liturgy, um, we're talking, I, and when I say liturgy, I think I'm talking uh, more specifically about traditional liturgy. Um, if you go to um, an Anglican church, let's say, you're going to go through and you're going to have communion, uh, you're going to have a confessional prayer, um, and so... But, if, but liturgy is really just kind of the, what is the tradition, what is the, in some senses, what is the order of the service, and what is included in that as far as the ways that we engage together as the body of Christ. But I'm, specifically when I use the word liturgy, um, I'm, I, w- I want to reference more traditional liturgy uh, in regards to things like communion, uh, confessional prayers, saying the Nicene Creed together. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here this morning, but it will be over the next uh, several weeks that Dr. Joe will talk about some of those in more specific. So just want to give you an idea of w- some, of the, some of the words and the verbiage that I'm going to be using and what, what I mean when I say that. Um, but I grew up in a non-denominational, in non-denominational churches, um, as, as many of you did as well. And I think because of growing up in a non-denominational church, um, I think I subtly... Um, felt and look back and think, I really started to view maybe a traditional liturgy, um, like some of you guys described going to a a Lutheran church or an Anglican church or something like that. I started to view some of the liturgy of a church like that as um, really uh, merely being traditionalism. And when I say traditionalism, what I mean by that, um, it would be uh, doing something only out of ritual and doing something with no life. So, Oh yeah, they just go through and you go in and you um, you know say this, repeat this prayer together, and you say the Lord's prayer together. And you know some of you might have experienced that, or some of you have some thoughts about maybe we'll use the Lord's prayer. I think that's a good example where we might think of oh well, you go to some church and they say the Lord's prayer together, and all it is is just this ritual of t- repeating this particular prayer. When man, I want to be personal with God and I want to uh, talk to God. I don't want to just say a prayer that people say together as if it doesn't have any particular meaning. I really want to, um, to have life in my walk with the Lord. I don't want to just do something out of ritual. And so for me, I think there was this, this subtle belief in my heart that, and in my mind that, that to do something out of repetition, to do something out of ritual, is just mere traditionalism. doesn't really have any life to it. Um, I would say that over the last maybe even 10 or 15 years, um, I've been on a little bit of a journey that I feel like has, has, is, is starting to come and produce some different fruit in my life. I remember when I went to seminary and I was in church history class and, uh, and, and I, and I remember studying now having gone to all the non-denominational churches, I remember studying, uh, some of the liturgy and some of the ways in which, 
some of the traditions within churches start, were, were started, why they came to be and how they came to be and what they meant. And I found myself thinking, wow, these are so beautiful. They're so rich. They're so amazing. There's so much behind what I would just saw as this shell of traditionalism. I do understand how, you, if you just do the same thing over and over and over again, it can easily become traditionalism. It can easily become something that you do merely out of duty or just out of repetition, and you do it because that's what you've always done. You forget what you're saying, really. You're just saying it, um, and you're not necessarily... There isn't a whole lot of life in what you're talking about or what prayer you're repeating or saying together. I totally understand that. But I, I thought, I never knew that this is why this is being done or this is where this came from or this is the meaning behind all of this. And... And so, thinking, this is really wonderful if you understand uh, what, where this is coming from. And then, and so there was just, that was just a learning process for me in going through seminary and going through some church history classes. And then as I've been in a college pastor for the last 10 years, um, as I've led the mill, um, there's, there's kind of a, uh, a, a stream, if you will, or a... a, a um, I don't know if you want to call it a movement or not, but you can call it whatever you want to call it. Um, there's a portion of the church that some people are calling the emergent church, and um, we don't want to, I don't want to take too much time to go into definitions of all of that. That's a topic and discussion for another day. But, but there's this kind of um, desire, especially amongst maybe even non-denominational. They're not associated or affiliated with any mainline denominations like the ones that many of you mentioned just a little bit earlier. Uh, but, but there's this. There, there, I, I was reading, started reading some books of you know some of these, some of these emergent churches, and and some of these emergent churches were incorporating liturgy into and bringing liturgy back. But the way that I was hearing it and what I was reading was this kind of uh, old is cool, you know, to uh, to to do the th- the ancient traditions of the church uh, somehow is just kind of the the cool thing to do. So so it's uh, you know it's kind of like. Uh, in our culture, a lot of things that are old, you know, old things are now cool. Old things are new, you know. Uh, old things are cutting edge. Um, old, old, uh, old traditions. I mean, we even look back to obviously the the uh, recycling of ideas, or not ideas, but the recycling of fashion and and the recycling of different things. And we look back and we think, oh man, what they, that that's so cool. The way that that looks. I mean, we even different. Uh, I don't know, appliances. You know, you, you, you look in magazines sometimes or you look in, in uh, I, I, I'm a, I have an old house and so I, uh, I loved, I'm fixing, been fixing up my house for the last 10 years and so I look at like, fix up your house magazines. I know I, I sound like a cool guy right now but, uh, but I, I, in, in there, one of the things that's really popular, especially in old houses, is to take like an old 50s looking refrigerator or an old 50s-looking uh, stove and put it in your, brand, in your house, you know, like fix up your kitchen, and it looks like it's from the 50s, and it looks like if you, know, if you bought it in the 50s, it would cost you $50, but it costs you like $10,000 to have this like old-looking refrigerator, and it looks sweet, you know, so old is really cool, you know, old is new. And, and so I think I felt like that was uh, kind of happening with the emergent church, this whole idea of like the old tradition, the old things of the church, now are the new things of the church, and that's pretty cool. And I thought, I don't know that I'm interested in just 
kind of incorporating that just to be cool. You know, I don't know that that's what it's really all about, and you know, I don't, I don't need that to be cool. Um, I'm cool on my own, thank you very much. Um, and so, 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 just didn't know that that was really the the best way to incorporate some of those things and look at it and and all of that. But I feel like in the last uh, couple of years, I've come to maybe a place where I realized. Uh, and have even another new perspective on the value or the, the understanding of some of the liturgy um, that has been a part of the church really for the past 2,000 years. And, and how as a non-denomination church guy, um, maybe that those things play into our lives, um, not just on a Sunday uh, or a Friday um, or in a corporate service, but maybe also into our lives on a personal basis. And, um, and so I don't think it is just the uh, old is cool perspective. Um, and, and I don't think it is just the, oh, let's just do this because we've always done this traditionalism perspective. I think there's a little bit of a different perspective, at least that I'm coming to, and I hope that it resonates for you. Um, so let me just start off by talking about this, first of all. And that is that I believe, and the Bible says, that our hearts are deceptive. Our hearts, as all of us would, would know, um, will lead us astray. We are, we are selfish. Um, our sinful nature is going to lead us towards the things that we want to do. I mean, if we look at our culture and we look at the things that we maybe fight and wrestle against in our own selves, is for us to do what we want to do. We want what we want them when we want them, right? I mean, if we, if we left to our own selves, we are going to get ourselves what we want in the most convenient way and the most comfortable way. That is human nature. That is sinful nature. And ultimately, it is Christ who says to us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him. And the way of Jesus is to say, to lay those things aside, is to lay aside our own me-first, selfish, I-want-what-I-want-when-I-want-it ways and to follow after the ways of Jesus. And so if we realize that that is our bent, that our bent is going to be towards selfishness, then we need help to not live in that particular way. And, and so, left to ourselves in our prayers, let's say, left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who will speak what we like to hear. We will pray, and I've talked about this in the middle before, we will pray or we will shape a God that meets our needs. We will, we will form a God in our own minds, that will respond or does the things that we want him to do. We will create a God in our mind that will give us what we want. Um, and so what is key is that we are understanding and, and, uh, and coming to a greater uh, under, uh, belief in the God who really is. It's the reason that uh, the Attributes of God book by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, is one of my favorite books. Is because it talks all about God. It's about the characteristics and the attributes of God. And it talks about them in a way that blows and bends your mind. But that's what I want. I don't want to create a God that I totally understand. I don't want to create a God that I can manage and I can kind of squeeze into the box that I want him to be in in order for him to make my life the way that I want it to be. I want to serve and worship a God who shapes and bends my life who I don't understand all the time, but I trust myself and entrust myself to him. And so, so if I realize that my heart is deceptive and my heart is going to lead me towards selfishness, 
then what I need is help in directing my heart towards the ways of God. And so I want to uh, speak to the God who speaks to me. I want to speak to the true and living God. Does that make sense? I think we all want that, or at least we say we want that, but I'm not always convinced that we actually do whatever we can to get ourselves to that place. And so I believe that liturgy helps us get there. Um, we, live in a, we live in a culture, there's a, there's a phrase that I've been kind of um, embracing and, and a phrase that I, that I really love that describes this in some way. And it's the idea of, our, of using the word imagination. And we have, we all have an imagination. And I'm not just talking about the, the imagination that creates. You know, the, uh, my kids are very, you know, have great imagination. Cohen, especially my, my second son, um, is, has a wild, wonderful imagination. And, and, and he, but he's, you know, so he's imagining when he is eating um, um, grilled cheese and tomato soup, he will bite and eat the sandwich into the shape of a dinosaur and then he will uh, dip it into the tomato soup, which for him is lava. And so, you know, I mean, that's a wonderful imagination to, to, to do that, you know, and it's really fun to watch. I'm not talking specifically about the creative aspects of our imagination like a, like a little kid. When I think of imagination, I'm thinking about what do we think about and how do we think and, I th- and, and, and what, what is in our head that causes us to think of when we think about something, what do we think about? For instance, what is our um, uh, 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 prayer? What is our prayerful imagination? When we think about when we are praying, what is it that's shaping the way that we pray? When we, uh, as a pastor, what is shaping my pastoral imagination? And there are lots of different ways to be a pastor, um, and there are ways that are very much like okay, I'm just going to be a, a, a a, uh, a consumer pastor, if you will. Like, whatever the people want, I'm going to try and meet those needs. That's one way to be a pastor. I don't think that that's the right way to be a pastor. But I don't want to... So I want to make sure that the ways that are shaping my pastoral imagination are helping me to be the pastor that God has called me to be and to be the pastor that I think um, God wants pastors to be like, um, if that makes sense. So, so I think... And we all have an, we all have an imagination. And our imagination is being shaped by something. And if, if we don't have, and, and this is on all different aspects and all different topics and all different perspectives and worldviews. And if we don't, aren't intentional about shaping our imaginations, the culture is going to shape our imagination. And so if our culture shapes our prayerful imagination, then what is going to happen is our culture is going to point us towards what do I want, when, I, when do I want it, and how do I want it? And so I'm convinced that we need to make sure that we have other things uh, pointing into and falling into our heads that aren't just about remembering, but are about shaping our imaginations. I want God, I want the truth of God's Word to be shaping my prayerful imagination. And so... The reason I use even prayer, I think I'll, use, I'll talk about prayer for just a minute, is that when I pray and you pray, if we are not shaped by the God of the Bible, if we are not 
uh, understanding who God truly is, then we are going, what are our prayers going to sound like? They're going to sound like, God, will you give me what I want? Now, we wouldn't say it probably like that. Maybe you would. Uh, hopefully not. But, <laughs> but essentially, are we not oftentimes praying that way? God, I pray that you do this. God, I pray that you do this. God, I pray that you do this. Please do this for me. Please fix this for me. And it's very much about what I want and how I want it. But what if, what if God has something else in mind for us? What if God isn't just our genie in the sky? What if God isn't our God that just makes our life somehow better because we've included him into our prayers? And so, and so I want my mind and my imagination to be God-dominated, truth-dominated, not culture-dominated. And so, so what, what am I filling my brain with? Well, I think the majority of the time, we are filling our brains with television shows, movies, um, video games, things like that. Now, I'm not anti any of those things, um, but I, am, I have become much more aware of what I am actually shaping my imagination with. And so, so to me, liturgy, and when I, you know, things like repeating our, our, the, the Nicene Creed together, I'm going to actually read that to you here just a little bit, um, confessional prayers, uh, praying a psalm together, um, the, uh, you know, doing the communion, of course, and some of the liturgy that goes along with communion, those things um, are not just merely cool factor or retro factor, um, but I believe there's a much, a much greater reason. It's about shaping our imaginations to give us language and to give us direction and to give us content for our personal prayers. In other words, I'm not saying let's go towards a, okay, we, the only thing we can do is we can repeat and say prayers that are the Lord's Prayer. That's the only prayer that we should be praying together because it's the right prayer. I think we should pray the Lord's Prayer together on a regular basis. I think that we should repeat the Nicene Creed together on a regular basis so that when we pray by ourselves, so that when we have this personal time of prayer, our prayers are being shaped by the truth of those prayers which have, um, are grounded in the God who truly is rather than our prayers being grounded in our desire for who we want God to be. Does that make sense? If, now we might say, well, I just want to pray what's in my heart. I totally agree. I want us to pray what's in our hearts. But I want my prayers, my personal prayers, my individual prayer time to be informed by truth. And, and, and please don't take this, these thoughts and these discussions or any of what we're talking about here to say that, that we should now become the prayer police and somehow start evaluating each other's prayers um, or saying, well, I'm not praying right. This isn't about praying right. Um, This is about us uh, coming to a place where we truly um, embrace the God who is. There's something much bigger going on here uh, in regards to the ways that we talk, in the ways that we pray, in the ways that we are denying ourselves and coming around what it means to really embrace Jesus and embrace the ways of Jesus. And so uh, corporate and historical prayers um, help us do that. And, and so 
And so I think we need that. We need this influence to help shape our imaginations. Let me just read to you um, a, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the give forgiveness of sins. We, took, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So, that's the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed um, was established in the first couple centuries of the, of the church, and it was in response to uh, heresy that was beginning to arise. And so the church gathered together to say, we want to make sure that we have a statement that, that communicates clearly what the Church of Jesus Christ believes and specifically responds to and makes sure that um, we, we communicate against what is heretical. And one of the heresies was ha- that, that this responded to had to do with the divinity of Christ. And, and so, really, as I, what I just read is, is basic theology. It's an understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, death, burial, and resurrection, and the coming of Jesus again. Now, that's a wonderful thing for us to all know. It's a wonderful thing for us to have in our, in our thought process and in our heads as we, and in our imagination, if you will, as we pray, is that we have words, and you might say, well, I don't know what you just said. That's okay. <laughs> I don't expect you necessarily to memorize what I just said. But, but it is good for that to be in our in our imagination, in our heads, in our, in our hearts as we pray, we recognize that we are praying to a God who has always been. That we are praying to, a, to, to Jesus who, who is, is the Son of God but, but is God. And, and there's so much rich theology in that paragraph that I just read that to shape our imaginations and to give direction and language to our words is really, really important. And we sometimes have thrown out the, well, that's just tradition, and I, we want to be full of the Spirit. And, and I'm, I'm saying what I, I grew up hearing, whether I heard that directly or I, I heard the subtle implications of that. And that somehow if you just embrace the Nicene Creed, let's say, or if you just embrace the repetition of that, those, the, the Lord's Prayer, that somehow you're not living according to the Spirit. And I would like to think that there's this this embracing of both, that informing our language 
and giving direction to our thoughts and our prayers actually helps us to more accurately and more, more, um, uh, more truly and authentically walk according to the Spirit. Does that make sense? I, feel, I know that I'm talking about some pretty big ideas here that maybe for some of you, if you were like me and grew up in a non-denominational church your whole life, it might actually be like, oh, I've never thought of it quite like this. And so this is something that I've been chewing on for a while, and this might be the beginning of you chewing on something as well. Um, but I wonder also if, you know, this has been something, the, the, um, the Nicene Creed is something that, as well as some of these other things, have been things that, that the church has been repeating and is being repeated around the world today, all over the world. And so not only all over the world right now, but it's been repeated all over the world together as the body of Christ for thousands of years. And so as a result, as a result, there's this this rootedness that is, I think is so valuable and so important for us as modern-day Christians. As modern-day followers of Jesus, I wonder if in many ways we've lost our rootedness. And our rootedness is not about, well, we're not really part of them anymore, but our rootedness has to do with, oftentimes, I find, an arrogance and a pride that says, ah, we're fine on our own, we'll figure this out in 2010. As opposed to recognizing that 2,000 years of church history actually have taught us something about how we address and how we respond to the ways of culture, how we respond to the um, pushbacks against Christianity, and how we embrace the ways in which the people that have walked with Jesus and and embraced, and the ways that the church has embraced that through the centuries, that we can actually learn from that about ways that we can um, eliminate or push against our own desire for our own selfishness and and having our own way. Um, And so I think that we can learn from the things of the past. If we also, um, it also helps us, I think, to recognize that we are not, our story is not so isolated, that we as a church, we as a body of Christ, are not just the body of Christ for 2010, but we are part of the universal, have been part of the church for the last 2,000 years. And so, so, so we recognize that there's this huge, long story that we're a part of. And when, I, when we say, like the Nicene Creed, when we repeat that together, or we do something like that, what I feel like it does for me and I think that it does for us, is it helps to insert ourselves into the story that is the church, which is God's story. We, ins- we don't just say some sort of prayer because it's a nice prayer. It's a, story, it's, it's, the, it's a prayer that's been part of the church, so we then insert ourselves into and become part of the story. I think the other thing about liturgy that I think is really important, and... and, and and I, when I say liturgy, again, I don't just mean repeating things for re- repetition's sake. But, and, and there's really a broad sense of liturgy and sacraments. Sacraments, of course, being communion and such, but even some of these prayers, which aren't necessarily a sacrament. Um, but we so quickly want tools that enable us to do things and get things. And I think that we oftentimes can look at prayer as a tool to get things or do things. And I think that one of the things that liturgy does for us is it helps us to, to recognize that, that not everything that we... Not, that prayer is not a tool for us to do and to get, but it is a tool for us to become. 
It is a tool for us to be able to insert ourselves and to sink into and to um, enable us to take in the story of God, to take in the truth of God, rather than to get something or do something. And, and, I, and that's, a sh- that's a shift for us because of our cultural influence which says that you need to do something, you need to get something, you need to... And so if it's a tool, it's a tool for doing, it's a tool for getting. Um, I hope that this is somewhat clear. I'm not sure how how clear this is coming across. Some of you might be like, I am totally lost right now by what you were talking about. I'm glad this is a good process for you, but but um, it's definitely still a process. And it really is still a process for me, and so I think maybe one of the reasons I'm not sure that I feel like I'm communicating as clearly as I would like to um, might even have to do with the fact that I feel like this is a, a learning and growing process for me uh, as far as what this looks like. Um, because of this, uh, if you've been around the mill over the last several years and maybe even over the last couple of months, you might have realized, I think, that there's, we've included more liturgy uh, on Friday nights. Um, we don't have a, okay, every week we do these things. We have communion, we have a confessional prayer, we do the Nicene Creed, that kind of thing, which there's any, not anything wrong with that. But I, I feel like I really want us on Friday nights to have things that are shaping our imagination. Um, towards the God who is. And so it, you might have noticed, maybe you haven't. Um, either way, it doesn't matter. But, I, but, I, but it's been intentional on my part to incorporate some piece of more traditional liturgy to inform uh, our, our imaginations so that when we pray on a personal level, we're not just praying out of our selfish heart desires, but we're what, but we're being informed by what it is that God has for us to take in. And, he's, and we're also giving language and direction to the prayers and the, and the things that we do in our lives. I want to talk just for a little bit as we finish up here this morning about the Psalms. Because I think the Psalms are one of the great ways and one of the great gifts to us to shape our language and our imagination. Um, Jesus actually uses the Psalms. Just in case we might say, well... Aren't I, again, aren't I supposed to just be led by the Spirit, and can't I just pray out of what's in my heart? Yes, but I think what's, but what shapes and directs our hearts is just as important. And Jesus uses the Psalms, and he oftentimes prays the Psalms. And I think that it is a mistake of ours to have maybe lost and let go of the things that we've been doing on a, for thousands of years. And, and, and we, because we've labeled them as just traditional and having no life, instead of incorporating them as ways to give direction, content, and language to our prayers and to the things that we do throughout life. But I want to talk just a little bit about the Psalms because the Psalms are maybe one way that help connect us to what God is trying to do in us. Um, Let me talk about the Psalms first by talking about language. Um, I think that you can break language down into three different descriptions or types of language. Language one, if you will. um, Language one is the language of intimacy and relationship. When I say the language of intimacy and relationship, I think the three areas of life that we see this most expressed is with a baby. I have um, four boys, of course, you know, that are eight and under. And they, you know, when you have a little baby, you see people interacting with a baby. Hey, you know, and there's this just, you're just making noises, you're 
they gurgle, they, you know, I mean, and there's, you're not saying anything profound necessarily, but there's this, this language of intimacy. There's this language of relationship that happens between especially parents and their little baby. But certainly you see it even with, with people who aren't their, their parents. And you see this interaction. It's really a beautiful thing to watch. And sometimes you can see interactions with parents and children that don't say a whole lot, but you just see this intimacy between a, a father and a son or a, a mother and a daughter. And, and the beauty of that relationship, you see it at, at, at the beginning of, of life at, at, um, with babies. We see it at death. A lot of times at death, you know, there's very little language of, you know, talking about, well, did you water the lawn today? I mean, you know, when you're, somebody is close to death, there's something about the way that you communicate with someone there that is so simple, so profound, and so you get to the, to the core of what you're talking about, what you're, what's in your heart, what's in their heart. And, and the other time, I think, is love. We see it oftentimes when, when relationships begin. You know, you ever see somebody, you know, they, they're lovers, people who are in love, and you see them, and they're just ooing and aahing and gurgling in each other's ears, you know, I mean, they're, and, uh, you know, it's, you're like, oh my gosh, whatever. <laughs> and, and it's nothingness, you know, sweet nothings, if you will, that they're speaking into each other's ears, but there's this, there's this beauty to that language. It might not be full of, of big words, and it might not be full of data, but it is full of intimacy and relationship. Language two would be the language of information. It's the primary language of school. It's where we do receive information and data. It is the, um, it is the building of information and understanding based upon knowledge. That's language two. We get very trained, especially, you know, my Parker's eight. He's now in second grade. He's moving out of, it's kind of sad, actually, it's, it's, he's moving out of the intimacy relationship language one on a, on a, as his primary language into language two, where he's learning a lot of data. He learns, he's learning about um, the Ice Age, and he's learning about uh, you know, grammar, and he's learning about math and multiplication and all these different things. And that's good. We need to have some knowledge. But it is the primary language um, of school, and it's oftentimes one of the languages that we feel more comfortable in. And then language three is the language of motivation. We oftentimes learn information first, but then we start to learn how to motivate people towards information or towards ideas. And so we learn the, the language, language three, language of motivation, which is the primary language of marketing and advertising and politics. And, and if you think about our culture, which is a very consumer-driven culture, uh, it's a very market-driven consumer-driven, persuasive language that pervades our culture. And so language two and language three are oftentimes the primary languages that we are taught and immersed in within our culture. But I believe that what God is interested in for us is that we engage with him, not just with language two and language three, but that we engage with him with language one. That we engage with God in the language of intimacy and relationship. Because that's where and what God is all about. But if we are culture-dominated again, then, then we are going to be immersed in and we are going to communicate with God on the basis of language two and language three rather than language one. And so, 
And so we, we go to him with our information. God, I need this, this, and this. This is what's going on in my life, and can you please fix this and this? And then we try to motivate him to do that, and so we use language three. The Psalms are a primary way that I think that we connect with God through language one. And so one of the reasons, if, if you're, some of you, especially if you, like Aaron, I don't know where he just went, but Aaron Higgins, um, grew up in the Anglican Church. In the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, um, many of these churches use the BCP, the Book of Common Prayer. And the Book of Common Prayer has liturgy, has like, I just did a wedding last weekend, um, and in there is the liturgy, if you will, for uh, a, a wedding. And so everything in the wedding was already mapped out. It, what I was supposed to say, what, what kind of prayers we pray for the couple and with the congregation and for the congregation. And, and so that's what, and then there's, there's a communion liturgy about the prayers that they pray together. There's confessional prayers. But half of the book, common, book of Common Prayer are the Psalms. And it's because the Psalms are used as prayers in order to teach us, I believe, language one. is to bring us back to and, and, and return us to the language of prayer. That our prayers aren't based on language that's for information and language for persuasion and motivation, but language that teaches us and trains us in developing intimacy and relationship with God. So not only are we giving language of truth, but I would also love through the Psalms to give us language of intimacy towards God. So, so if we think of liturgy in regards to that and, and helping us develop relationship and language, then to me, liturgy and embracing uh, the Nicene Creed and in praying the Psalms together brings on a whole new meaning and brings to life these things like the Lord's Prayer that maybe we've thought of as just being this traditional, well, Jesus didn't say we needed to pray the Lord's Prayer over and over and over together. He was giving us this say, you know, that it's kind of a model for prayer and some of the ways that we've described the Lord's Prayer. And so it is the language of prayer that is most necessary to our humanity. And it is the language of prayer, I believe, of language one that God is most interested in us embracing. And for some of us, you're probably sitting there, you're thinking, I don't, man, language one is scary. But language one, and I, I mean, you might even say, I don't even know how to get there. I think we get there through the Psalms. If we look at David and we read the Psalms, David cries out out of the depths of his heart. It's almost sometimes if you read the Psalms, not for information, but if you read, if you pray the Psalms, it's almost uncomfortable. You ever read the Psalms and felt uncomfortable? Where David is crying out to a God who he feels like has abandoned him. You're like, I know that God hasn't abandoned me because the Bible says that, that uh, you know, you will never leave me nor forsake me. But are we not maybe responding out of language two, the language of information? Whereas David is responding out of language one where he's saying, I just, God, where are you? I, I know that you're there. He, I mean, I'm sure that he knows that God's never left him, but at the same time, there's this expression like a baby of... Where are you? And that connection with God through language one is the beauty of relationship and intimacy that God is drawing us towards. And it is in praying the Psalms, it's actually through the, the BCP, um, Book of Common Prayer, um, there's actually there's 150 Psalms, 
and tradition um, teaches us to actually pray five psalms a day. One through five, the first day. Six through ten, the next day. Eleven through fifteen, the next day. And if you do that, then obviously 150 divided by five is 30, so you end up praying through the the entire book of Psalms um, every month. And so there's this repetition, again, um, that isn't about repetition with no life. It's just going through the motions. It's about repetition to train and to teach and to shape our imagination so that our imagination is its a prayerful imagination. It's a biblical imagination. It's a God-dominated imagination. It's a language-one imagination. It's a, it's a, um, a truth-shaped imagination. It's not a culture-shaped, selfish-shaped, um, what-I-want-shaped imagination. And left to ourselves, our imaginations will be self-shaped. Left to ourselves, our imaginations will, will be culture-shaped. Left to ourselves, they will be what-I-want-shaped. And so it is in the traditions of the Nicene Creed, which, by the way, people took a lot of time to make sure that what is being said in the Nicene Creed and what the Nicene Creed ended up saying, lots and lots of time. It wasn't a guy who just prayed a prayer and all of a sudden we took his prayer and said, oh, that's a wonderful prayer and that's a wonderful creed. We should just say that on a regular basis over the next thousand years. I mean, there was hours and hours and days and days and hundreds of people shaping that to make sure that the wording is true to what is in the scripture. And so, so it's not just that, oh, what they said was more valuable than what I have to say. It's about shaping our imaginations to be biblical imaginations, to be truthful imaginations, to be Holy Spirit-inspired imaginations, to be imaginations dependent upon um, the God who is, not the God who we want. And it's an imagination um, that leads us towards um, an, uh, imagine, uh, that leads us towards relationship, it leads us towards intimacy, and it leads us towards not using God, not using the Scripture, but immersing ourselves into it and entering the story of God and the story of the church and the story of truth. Uh, in us. So, does that make sense? I'm glad it made sense to you, Bill. <laughs> like I said, this has been um, something that I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm embracing in a new way over the last um, couple of years and something that I, I'm enjoying the process of. It's not always comfortable. It's maybe a little bit difficult and maybe different, especially based upon the fact that of my upbringing having been through non-denominational churches the, most, the, the majority of my life. But um, anyway, maybe let's, we've got a couple of minutes. I would love just a couple of comments. Any comments, thoughts, before we finish? Powerful thing. And um, I don't know, it's, it's a new perspective because I've been going here for five years. So now that the Spirit's been alive in a while and bringing the tradition back into it absolutely makes it more beautiful. And I love that we're kind of going that direction. There's more depth and there's more meaning. And it does reshape your heart and re- reforms your mind concerning God. And I yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah, it isn't a throw one away. I think that's maybe how I felt, is that in the non-denominational um, streams that I've been in, it's just almost like, well, we're going to throw all that away and only do this. And maybe on the other side, it has felt like we throw all that away and it's only this. And I would love for, I think there's a beautiful marriage of both. Um, 
that adds depth and rootedness, but also embraces the um, life of the Spirit in the middle of all of that. So, yeah, that's cool. Okay? Anybody else? You, you would probably know this one because of your um, like of this writer, but I think it was Tozer that said you can be uh, straight as the barrel of a gun spiritually and empty as one too. Mm. Because um, the point behind that saying was that you, you can have too much knowledge without heart. Mm. And maybe in some ways you, you can also have too much heart without knowledge. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it goes from uh, um, knowing everything that they did in the past and doing it, doing it the same way that they've always done it just, just because or throwing out all that and trying to come up with new stuff and losing what people have been developing for thousands of years. Yeah. And uh, I think the point that I was getting to, to with all that is just to say that I agree with you that there is a wonderful, beautiful marriage between understanding what others have learned in the past and embracing new mysteries of God in today. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, comfortability. <laughs> um, we're creatures of routine and comfortability. I grew up Church of Christ, and we did Lord's Supper every single week. And um, while you're saying it's really good to um, get back to these things, even what we're doing today becomes routine pretty quickly because it's what we want. We wake up in a certain um, fashion doing the same steps, and you can almost set a clock to at 6.15, I'll be making coffee or whatever it is. Um, and and yet it's, it's speaking truth and life into that routine. Um, I think that we need to be aware of. Um, Lord's Supper, I miss it now that I've not done it every single week, but there was definitely times where I didn't really know what I was doing because I just was doing it so which is really a great point that whether it's traditional liturgy or the lack of it that both can can lose life Um, neither one is really truly more full of life it has to do with are we being thoughtful about the ways in which we're um, embracing what we're doing And, um, and I'd like to think that we can embrace both very important in one aspect to continue to value especially for Christians that are more non-denominational when we don't take the opportunity to look at the liturgy or to look at where traditions have come from Mm -hmm. even before like the traditions of why Jesus did some of the things that he did I think a lot of times uh, we end up taking taking communion or praying a prayer and not really knowing the full depth of which it comes from. And I think a lot of the times like traditions or celebrations or things that, you know, were celebrated in the past were important because it was a remembrance and it was, it was meant to be taken as to truly understand where it came from so that we can understand God's awe. It's a way of looking at him in one essence. Yeah. I wonder too, if, we have a little bit of a resistance as a culture towards tradition, just re- repeating things. And I'm not talking about repeating things with no life, but just repetition because we like excitement. We've been trained 
um, through our culture and maybe even through some of our church culture to embrace and think that things that are exciting are full of life. Um, and maybe there's, there's something about just doing things over and over again um, that we know have great value that don't always have an excitement factor to them that is really good for us to not necessarily only be associating life or spirit with exciting, but to be what really what is important is that we, we embrace and incorporate uh, and associate life and the spirit with what is true. And, and so, so by, by incorporating some of these liturgy things that we're talking about is an association of, of life and spirit with truth rather than life and spirit with emotion or excitement. Food for thought. All right, one more comment, and then we'll dismiss, if there is one. Yes. Um, Growing up, um, I was in a Nazarene church, and I can't remember the actual name of the pastor who said this, um, but it woke me up. Um, It was through a Sunday school teacher that I found this out. He told me that he heard um, from this, this pastor that I was born in the Nazarene church. My parents were in the Nazarene church. I was brought up into it, raised into it. And he gave me a warning. He says, it's harder for somebody born into a church because of liturgical ways. Religion starts getting based into it. There's no longer the relationship that you might lose your salvation because you're just born into it. It's habit. So there's a fine line um, with this of having liturgy and having a relationship. It's yeah. a very fine line. Because when you're born into a church or you've been into a church a long time, you start to lose it and you might not be as safe as what you thought you would. Yeah. Yeah, which is so important, I think, that conversations like this happen. You know, I, um, I, my grandma and grandpa were Lutheran. Um, and so I remember going to, being in a non-denominational church, I'd go visit them for the summer. And, and we'd go to church with them, and they'd go to a, a Lutheran church, and I remember it feeling like, <laughs> I, I couldn't, I mean, it was like a foreign land to me. I had no context for it. So, I, as a teenager, I would ask my grandparents, why do we do this? And they couldn't answer me. And to me, I think, discussions like this must not have happened. And I don't mean that this, you know, I don't know, maybe they did. But to me, kind of continuing to explain and develop why are we doing what we're doing so that you, whether you grow up in it or you're just doing it for a long time, it's not just tradition and religious action, um, but there is life continues to be behind it. So I, I didn't grow up in a, like I said, a traditional church, so I don't know if that ever did get talked about or if it's just assumed that you just do it and you know what you're doing. I mean, maybe you guys can speak to that. So, so I think it's helpful for us to know why. And... Um, so I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity. I'm glad Joe's marrying his cousin this weekend so that I could have the opportunity to, um, to share and kind of talk about some of my process that maybe you're experiencing in the middle on Friday night. Um, but now I also feel like I think it's wonderful for, for us to also understand when we do some sort of liturgy. This last week we did confessional prayer at the end of the, at the, end of the talk. Um, is that now there's more of you who are in my process and in this process of understanding why we do what we do. So uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Um, we are so grateful for the ways in which you are teaching and training us.
We're thank you, thankful, Lord Jesus, that it isn't just about us being left to ourselves, um, but instead you have given us so much richness in your scriptures and so much richness in the wisdom uh, through the centuries of your church, of your people, um, that can inform and, and point and give language to and reason and depth to what we do today on a daily basis. And God, I just pray that we would not, no matter what our tradition is, no matter what our, our liturgy is, that we wouldn't get caught up in just doing it to do it. I pray that no matter how often we do it or what we do, that we would, that we would understand why, that we would remember, that we would be uh, immersed into the story, uh, your story, and we'd be immersed into the, and enter into um, the story that is about not just data and motivation and inspiration, but about about truth and about intimacy and relationship, God. I pray that we would be men and women that would have our imaginations shaped and formed in a biblical and prayerful way, that we would seek you and know uh, the God who is rather than the God who we want. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would, um, that we would not throw away things because we think that they're just re- religious or traditional or dead, but instead that we would uh, try and find the life in what is true. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you guys. Um, if you are new to Sunday school, uh, welcome. And uh, if you're going to New Life, we oftentimes like to sit in section 11. And so enjoy section 11. See you soon.